Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey guys, welcome to the first episode of 1956, the eventful year. To give you a taster of what's to come, this episode and its follow-up are absolutely free for all listeners. But episode three onwards will require you guys to sign up for the bargain price of just $5 a month to join in the party. By paying $5 a month, you'll not only secure your place as a valued history friend, you'll also guarantee that you get the best of when diplomacy fails, the earliest access, access to past extra episodes, such as the Jan Sobieski biography series, and exclusive series to come, such as The Age of Bismarck. Above all, you'll be helping to ensure that I can continue to do this as part of my living, which is amazing, and you'll be helping to make history thrive in the process. If you guys have not listened to the two introductory episodes that come before this, because introduction episodes are just the best fun ever, then let me just get a few things out of the way here. It'll only take a second. If so, if you've heard all this before, don't worry too much. You should know that this episode, and this podcast series in general, has moved to a new address, as you can clearly see because you found us anyway. So, 1956 has its own RSS feed, and its own home within the When Diplomacy Fails podcast network, soon to be joined by many more, as you'll soon see. This way, 1956, the eventful year, can serve as a constant advertisement for the benefits of becoming a diplomat, but it also means that we don't clog up the normal podcast feed of When Diplomacy Fails with any 1956 episodes. My OCD senses are pleased, but your history senses should be well pleased too. Remember that all patrons can even help out further by giving a review in 1956's new home if you're enjoying the series. Now then, after all that out of the way, you might be wondering... What does 1956 have to offer? What exactly is in the box? Well, if you want to learn more about what followed after the Korean War, as a story and as a year of significance, 1956 has few equals. And we open our narrative with the event which set up all subsequent events, the death of Joseph Stalin on the 5th of March, 1953. As far as deaths of prominent characters go, the death of Stalin from a succession of strokes at the age of 73 on the 5th of March, 1953, sticks out most notably. A man who allowed his paranoia to get the better of him out of fear of his own vulnerability and out of a lust for power, died without being the victim of any underhanded scheme. But as we'll see, he also died without naming any official successor, throwing into chaos those men who had stuck around long enough to accumulate some power for themselves. In this episode, we'll meet these figures, the so-called collective leadership of the Soviet Union, which included such heavy hitters as Molotov, Malenkov, Lavrenti, Beria, Anastash Mikoyan, and a sometimes crude, always blunt figure by the name of Nikita Khrushchev. The story of what would come after Stalin is a gripping and fascinating snapshot of life at the top of the Soviet greasy pole. It prepares us for the eventful months which are to come in this eventful year by investigating exactly what it was that compelled these men to undo some of what Stalin had made while still holding on to the terrifying edifice which held half of the continent in rapture. I hope you'll join me then, and a huge thanks for your support 
so far. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the first episode of our Patreon-exclusive series, 1956, The Eventful Year. Running side-by-side the Whopper Korean War series, 1956 will give all true history nerds a chance to see what happened once the dust settled after the Korean War and the Soviet hierarchy was forced to respond to Joseph Stalin's death. In this episode, indeed, we pick up from that moment in history on the 5th of March, 1953, when Stalin departed from the stage and left a gaping hole in Soviet leadership that he had dominated for three decades. Without any further ado then, I think we should just get into it. I will now take you all to the evening of the 5th of March, 1953. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Joseph Stalin had been dead for six hours and ten minutes before the Kremlin flag was lowered and the radio announced that the Soviet leader was no more. In an age of split-second announcements of death, there is something strange in this delay. No less strange were the official communiques on his last illness, which noted only the week before that, The best medical personnel has been called in to treat Comrade Stalin. The treatment is under the direction of the Minister of Health. The treatment is under the continuous supervision of the Central Committee in the Soviet government. As the historian Bertram D. Wolf noted only months after the event, nine doctors watching each other, the Minister of Health watching the doctors, the Central Committee and the government watching the minister. Early on the morning of March the 6th, with all the morning papers missing from the streets, the radio announced that the Soviet leader had died at 9.50pm the night before. Along with this note of time of death was a telling communique repeated every hour, which included a call to maintain... The steel-like and monolithic unity of the ranks of the party. To guard the unity of the party is the apple of the eye. To educate all communists and working people in high political vigilance, intolerance and firmness in the struggle against internal and external enemies. The most important task of the party and the government, the communique continued, is to ensure uninterrupted and correct leadership of the entire life of the country, which demands the greatest unity of leadership and the prevention of any kind of disorder and panic. The appeals for a call to steel-like and monolithic unity and to increased vigilance and intolerance in the struggle with internal and external enemies continued to reappear in editorials and articles over the week that followed. In Stalin's state funeral, accompanied by all of the nauseating, resplendent pontifications which only that figure could command, even though he was no longer alive, 
the urges for unity, strength and resistance to any notions of disorder or panic were repeated, most notably in the several eulogies performed by the Soviet Union's top brass. Only in a polity like the Soviet Union could the death of a leader create an atmosphere of serious alertness and such consistent warnings. What disorder, what panic did Moscow expect to occur? Was it really possible that the Soviet Union could just come crumbling down in a fit of revolution, simply because its most famous leader of recent times had died? Stalin's successors, in a sense, were waiting to find out the answer to a very important question. Was the Soviet Union stronger than Stalin's will? In no other country in the world, even those recently established in the 1950s, would the death of a ruler be greeted with such a reaction? This is, of course, because the Soviet Union was quite unlike every other country in the world. The so-called Soviet government was not a government run by the Soviet councils, and these same Soviet councils had long since ceased electing any deputies to their company. The Soviet citizens did not have a say in their democratic dictatorship, and that was precisely the problem, in addition to several others, that Stalin left behind to those that would attempt to succeed him. He had monopolised everything, in every conceivable way, for so long that the original organs of the state given life in the revolution of 1917 no longer operated. The dictator had controlled the Politburo, which had controlled the Central Committee, which had controlled the party, which had then run the sprawling Soviet state. With the top figure gone, the pressing problem was one of a power vacuum and a situation familiar to all empires that lose an emperor who neglected to appoint a successor. While the ironclad authority of the Soviet Union may appear unquestionable to us in light of how long that state lasted, in 1953 we should bear in mind that reference to disorder and panic, or to maintaining the unity and determination of the party, were not directed at would-be civilian dissidents or foreign powers. Consider this nightmarish situation which followed Stalin's death. At the death of the dictator, there are no parties to establish a legal succession by electoral contest. There is no Soviet constitutional provision for a successor to the post of self-appointed political genius. There is no party which any longer decides anything, debates anything, or selects anybody. There is not even a provision for a dictator, much less for a successor, in the constitution or in a party statute. There is no moral code either to restrain the aspirants to the succession from framing each other up and killing each other off. Insofar as they follow the precedents bequeathed to them, and insofar as they follow the real inner laws of the total state, that is precisely what they will have to do. It is to one another and to their deeply established personal fears that they are speaking when they call to an awed populace for steel-like unity and monolithic unity of party and of leadership. It is from their own hearts that the words escaped concerning disorder and panic. Thanks to Stalin's legacy, a power struggle for the top position in the Kremlin was inevitable. It was a question of when and how rather than if. In addition, for foreign observers, it was also a question of who. Who indeed could possibly fill the murderous shoes of Stalin? And who could possibly come close to wielding the kind of power brandished by Stalin's Soviet sword? To bring the question further, after Stalin's horrific purges and a second round of terror between 1948-53, to had reached its apex, just on the point of his death, one could be forgiven for asking with a sense of despair who was really left to rule in Stalin's stead. Any successor would not only have to fill Stalin's shoes, they would also have to fix the immense problems Stalin left behind, 
in addition to the top-heavy leadership system they inherited. When Stalin died, he didn't just leave behind many hundreds of thousands of orphans and millions of victims, he also left behind a cult of personality unparalleled at the time of his death, which a certain protege of his in North Korea would come to emulate. Stalin's cult, and the way in which he sustained it, only added to the succession problem. The Soviet chairman created a cult of his person that was more extravagant because all who knew him knew his personal limitations. He was keenly sensitive to his inferiority as a theoretician and a popular leader. He knew that the men around him were his equals, and in many ways his superiors. This drove him to kill off all of Lenin's associates, to liquidate otherwise loyal communists on several levels, and in the process kill off as many potential successors as he could find, in the process choosing to surround himself only with lesser men, courtiers, sycophants, faction lieutenants and executants of his will. He exalted a cult of his person even from those he was about to destroy, and from the entire nation even as he tormented it. If Lenin's prestige was unable to bind his closest associates, who loved and revered him, to carry out his will after he was dead, how much less likely is the enforced, repugnant, humiliating Stalin cult to bring his associates or his party to execute his will? It wasn't that there was a need to replicate the cult and to replace Stalin with one of the sharks vying for his seat. Indeed, precisely because a cult of personality did not belong in the communist, socialist, workers' utopia, which the Soviet Union claimed to be, the problem of succession was exacerbated. Not merely a cult of personality, but even the notion of a single, all-powerful dictator fits badly into the Marxist framework of thought which assigns the history-making role to the classes, or in the Leninist version, to the party as a whole. It is not surprising then that Soviet political and constitutional theory consistently shied away from the question of what happens when a personal dictator, the unique Vosges of the party and the people, disappears from the lonely summit of Soviet power. The subterfuge employed from time to time by Soviet writers was to dismiss the problem of succession by piously insisting that leadership of the party had always been collegial or collective, residing in the regularly re-elected Central Committee, or the Politburo, and hence self-perpetuating. The farce that there's no need to discuss the succession to Stalin's position actually because Stalin was just the party's face and represented its collective will was just one example of the countless falsehoods peddled after Stalin's death, but not for long. Even while it was apparent that problems plagued the Soviet Union and that a great deal of these problems have been of Stalin's own making, those figures that swirled around the vortex of backbiting and competition had signed off on several of these measures in their own time. While one could argue that this obedience to Stalin's orders came out of fear for their own lives, this doesn't excuse those figures who were responsible in their tenure of office for increasing the misery of the citizens in their care on the expectation that such initiatives would result in promotion or favour from the mustachioed dictator. Indeed, those that had survived Stalin's tenure in office had largely done so because they had fallen in line with their master's record of cruelty and needless devastation, and in some cases, men had even surpassed his record. And of course, there were others that survived in the circle of figures after Stalin's death solely because they had thrown a comrade under the bus on the way up. But even then, survival was the best thing that the varied members of this circle could hope for, both in the political and literal sense. Even while each of the men in the aftermath had survived, none of them, with perhaps one exception we'll get into later, 
had been permitted to establish anything remotely close to a power or support base before Stalin had died. Since all were on equal footing, it stood to reason that all would be equally bloodied in the struggle that followed. All were equally weak, because that was how Stalin had wanted it during his lifetime, sparing no thought for what would happen to the Soviet Union after his death, if indeed he thought or cared much for what would happen at all when he was gone. As Stalin's peers could easily testify, the Soviet chairman had been jealous, resentful, envious and capricious by nature. No one dared to beg him to prepare for death or to consider a successor. None of Stalin's subordinates could possibly dare to try on the crown in his presence. It is unwise, even in a democracy, to announce too early in your term of office that you do not intend to run again. Men of your own party begin to abandon you for the bandwagon of your anticipated successor, while influence, power and leadership slip from your hands. But in a dictatorship which tolerates only a single power centre, it would be fatal to let anyone else openly wear the crown. A rival power centre would begin to polarise and the whole totalitarian regime would be called into question. The dictator's benefactor and heir would become a danger to the dictator, especially if the latter began this appointment process through some kind of unnatural abdication or renunciation of his own total power. Because Stalin feared his peers or his sins catching up to him, he did all he could to eliminate even the faintest trickle of opposition, and he never gave any thought to relinquishing even the smallest amount of his powers. When no such trickles existed, he shot blindly into the dark in an effort to create some. As soon as anyone around him began to shine, however faintly by the light of his own deeds, Stalin was swift to remove him from the stage. Sometimes the removal, after much fear-mongering and terrorising, led to a purge. At other times it led to mere ostracism or a shift to a minor provincial post, as in the cases of Marshals Timoshenko or Zhukov. Sometimes if rumours grew that some one man was the heir apparent, then, mysteriously, an assassin's bullet or a sudden illness brought the heir to his end. The problem was put eloquently by Bertram Wolfe, when he noted that The cult of his person grew until it filled the horizon and overarched the sky. Those around him, many of them very capable in their own right, were systematically reduced to dwarfs around a giant. Each fresh extravagance exacted from them in this cult of the master of everything, each blasphemous phrase in the litany of worship of a living god, diminished further the stature of the men around him and made harder the process of building up a new charismatic leader after his death. Stalin had killed off virtually all the men of October during the blood purges of 1934-38. to To put it another way, and these numbers will probably shock you a little bit, of the 139 members and candidates of the party's Central Committee who were elected at the 17th Party Congress in 1934, 98 people out of 139, in other words, 70% of their number, were arrested and shot, mostly during that infamous pre-war purge of 1937-38. The atmosphere of terror neither ended nor began with such a purge as we know. In 1947, on the 30th anniversary of the coup d'etat of November 7th, 1917, which brought the Bolsheviks to power in Russia, only 438 old Bolsheviks, who had joined the party prior to the seizure of power, were still alive and in good enough standing to sign a letter of thanks to Comrade Stalin for what he had done for the party. 
a quick glance at the variety of sources that examine the aftermath of Stalin's death underline that this type of system, which was characterised by empty displays of loyalty like these, did not really contribute towards a ruinous succession crisis after Stalin's death. They made such a power struggle inevitable. But again, even if the power struggle was solved, even if a kind of committee of the old Soviet guard shared power, which is what happened to some degree, then there still remained the issue of Stalin's troubling domestic and foreign legacy to consider. In the former, this could be summarised in one word, Gulag. And the latter could in the same way be summarised as Korea, or more broadly as Cold War. Those that Stalin hadn't seen fit to waste bullets on had been plunged into the often frozen, always terrible experience of the Gulag system. A system which Alexander Solzhenitsyn, writing in his stunning, explosive expose of that order, called a Gulag Archipelago in 1973. Solzhenitsyn, as a former resident of the Gulag, caused such controversy because the book, written in France, underlined for the first time in such vivid, uncompromising detail exactly how horrific and terrible the excesses of Stalin's regime were. Today, Solzhenitsyn is compulsory reading for Russian students on the school curriculum, and has been updated and added to several times by its author and supplementary historians since. In addition, since the archives dealing with the gulags have only been declassified for two decades, since the fall of the USSR in other words, there is much we still do not know, and therefore have to learn, about the role of this system in the Soviet Union. Much less difficulties, both practical and ideological, which faced those that attempted in the aftermath of Stalin's death to deconstruct the gulag system without deconstructing the Soviet rule of law. Finding a balance was therefore crucial in domestic affairs, but in foreign policy, Stalin's shadow extended across the world. The Cold War developed as it did thanks to Stalin's extensive insecurities and incorrect beliefs about the way the world worked. Above all, it is possible to argue that the Cold War developed in the first place because Stalin was not willing to trust the West, least of all the capitalist Americans, to respect Soviet interests. In addition, when attempting to unpack Stalin's creation of the Cold War, it is possible to see it as a response to that key question after the war. In other words, now what? If it is true that all states need an enemy to fear, to mobilise against and to remain on their toes in anticipation of a strike from that direction, then Stalin's empire could be moved and moulded based on the threat or rhetorical ammunition that a conflict with the West would provide. Justifying his actions in crises or incidents, blaming or criticising his countrymen for things they do not do, and signing off on their death warrant based on an ideological lie, was behaviour followed by Stalin domestically. See, for example, when, after making an enemy out of Yugoslavia's Josip Tito, Stalin charged all domestic enemies with adhering to the dangerous, treacherous, lecherous, Titoist deviation. See also how much political and practical use Stalin made out of the lingering threat of fascism, of the pervasive influence of capitalism, or of the looming danger posed by imperialism. Stalin and his state organs were masters at manipulating events to serve their ends, and these ends were also in pursuit of some kind of power. The swollen Soviet armed forces, the vast amounts spent on the nuclear weapons program, the tyranny and repression which was ratcheted up on the population, the demands for higher and larger production quotas, all could be justified by the dangerous circumstances in which these people lived. 
To view the Cold War as inevitable after 1945 is to underrate the genuine desire for peace and prosperity on both sides of the still-developing Iron Curtain and several levels of government. Above all, though, seeing the Cold War as inevitable underrates the significant driving influence that Stalin had over shaping and directing the Soviet Union's foreign policy towards friction and conflict with the forces of the West. For those that don't know, if you just happened across this series, 1956, the eventful year by chance, and you don't really know what my past body of work entails, you should know that in When Diplomacy Fails, my other podcast, I'm in the process of covering the Korean War. And in the Korean War series, we will see what happened to the whole peace process of that conflict once Stalin died, a fact which speaks volumes to the extent of the personal influence which the Kremlin leader had first on instigating and then manipulating that war into being. For now, though, it suffices to note that Stalin's death presented the succession circle with several problems. For all his horrible faults, Stalin had been able to balance the inherent contradictions of his rule together, largely because nobody would dare challenge such contradictions. However, once he was gone, and these contradictions needed to be fixed, the dilemma was exactly how far one could go. Did taking apart the Gulag system, for example, mean that the Soviet Union could no longer inflict its own barbaric brand of justice on those it deemed disloyal or dangerous? Certainly, there were many innocents in these camps, but it was also possible that there were many insidious elements as well. If these individuals were released, where would the amnesty end? If the gulag was not there in the background, would citizens still be willing to fall in line with the party doctrine? Amongst the circle of successors, different answers to these questions swirled around, as all looked to the upcoming 20th Party Congress in February 1956. It was at this congress that, among other things, the so-called secret speech would be delivered by Nikita Khrushchev, and Stalin would be targeted, his myth destroyed and his cult criticised publicly for the first time on such a level. This is a scene for a later episode, episode 3 to be precise, but to put things in perspective, in the midsummer of 1953, there were some ways to go, either before Stalin would be criticised in such a manner, or before the person of Khrushchev would be in a position to speak as the sole leading voice of the party. In other words, it's time to give a bit of background in this episode, and in the next one, to demonstrate how it was that a person like Nikita managed to reach the top of the greasy Soviet pole. One of his strongest assets, as it happens, was that his rivals consistently underestimated him. There were several stop-offs on the way to the announcement within communist circles of de-Stalinization. The Soviet government, such as it was, did not wait until the secret speech of February 1956 to begin dismantling Stalin's legacy. From March until the middle of June 1953, one domestic reform followed upon another in close but quiet succession. The Stalin cult was virtually abolished. A campaign of enlightenment was in process, designed to make it impossible to replace that cult with that of any other leader. The administration was being overhauled and shaken from its Byzantine totalitarian rigidity. A fairly comprehensive amnesty was decreed. The inquisitorial methods of the police force were bluntly condemned and the rule of law was proclaimed. There was a strong and repeated emphasis on the constitutional rights of the citizen. 
newspapers were even brave enough to ask for the abolition of censorship and official control. The Literary Gazette, to take one example, frankly demanded that the Soviet theatre manage its own affairs culturally without outside interference, a demand which nobody would have dared to raise during the Stalin years, and which obviously set an infectious example to others. Free expression of views was encouraged. A holder of unorthodox views was no longer labelled an enemy, a traitor or a foreign agent. High officials were demoted merely because they abused their power and had acted unconstitutionally. No fascist or Titoist or counter-revolutionary intent was attributed to them when they were gone. These ideas spread from the centre and outwards and saw the dismissal of the Russia fires from high office in Georgia and other outlying Union republics. Russification as a policy of centralising the Soviet Union around the Soviet Russian culture of revolution was emphatically disavowed. Together with the cessation of anti-Semitic incitement, these moves promised a new and hopeful beginning in the treatment of smaller nationalities. Last but not least, the government ordered a revision of the targets of the current economic plans. Consumer industries were to raise their output. A higher standard of living and contentment of the masses were obviously regarded as vital preconditions for the success of the new policy. There were even whispers that the Soviet military expenditure was to be reduced. Under Stalin, Western and American entry into the Soviet Union had been banned, but this was relaxed as well. Stalin had ordered that no more radios be produced in 1954, but upon his death this was ignored, and access to limited Western radio stations was permitted. Radios were produced in the millions, and Soviet citizens in their millions were able to listen to Time for Jazz and other such American-made programs, as their cities welcomed in thousands of curious foreigners. In addition, the ban on any Soviet citizens from leaving the country was also relaxed, and Soviet citizens with foreign wives or husbands were entitled to leave the country for good, if they wished. In the background to the domestic and social impact of destalinization following February 1956, the edicts of the Soviet successors before that date and before the secret speech and their impact on culture, tourism and the perceptions of the Soviet citizens have to be underlined. Nikita Khrushchev did not simply call an end to Stalinism. This process had already begun in several ways in the three years since Stalin's death. The order of the day, by welcoming all these guests into the Soviet Union, was to smother foreign guests in our embrace, as it was put. However, by opening up their country to more foreigners, and by hosting several socialist festivals in Moscow, for example, the Soviet citizen was able to see for himself that the propaganda regarding the Western individual did not match the reality. As one memoir of the era put it, Americans were depicted in two ways, either as poor, unemployed, gaunt, unshaven people in dregs, or as big-bellied bourgeois in tuxedo and tall hat with a fat cigar in the mouth. And there was a third category, hopeless Negroes, all of them victims of the Ku Klux Klan. Just as its propaganda line was being called into question, so too was the issue of Germany. Since spring 1949, West Germany, led by Konrad Adenauer, had led his party and welcomed eagerly the influx of American goods and monies. Yet there was something else Adenauer welcomed as well. The arrival of East German refugees in their hundreds of thousands. Between 1952 and 1953, 
over 220,000 East Germans had left their homes to settle in the more prosperous, less restrictive West. Among their number were several thousand members of the East Germany Communist Youth Parties and some actual serving members of Walter Ulbricht's incumbent East German government, who left never to return again. Walter Ulbricht was indeed facing something of a crisis in East Germany by early summer 1953, and his is a figure which we'll spend more time investigating in future episodes. He represented to the Soviet circle a kind of unfortunate blend of loyalty mixed with a lack of tact, a bullheadedness and a blandness which did not endear him to the East German people. In the atmosphere of the so-called thaw in the post-Stalin world, it is unsurprising that East German citizens took it upon themselves to protest at the situation in their country, at the lack of freedoms and at Walter Ulbricht's crummy leadership. Ulbricht urged Moscow to signal its support for him, yet the issue was tricky as the Soviets were in the process of meeting the British at this stage for talks. So long as Churchill was trying his hand at peacemaker in summer 1953, Ulbricht would have to ensure that the East German image presented to the world was one of calm, but in this, Ulbricht was hopelessly out of his depth. On the 16th of June, student protests at several universities in East Germany reached their apex in Berlin, and Ulbricht considered fleeing the country before Soviet tanks and soldiers stormed East Berlin and restored order to the fractured government. By the 20th of June, things had apparently calmed down, and Ulbricht was gushing in his thanks to his Soviet overlords for the necessary forceful response. The East German revolts were the first true test of Soviet metal after Stalin's death, and they represented, in summer 1953, an answer to that question of exactly how far Moscow would go in its quest to reform its clamouring societies. It wasn't as simple a case as the Soviets being scared into pursuing a more hard-line policy. However, the circle of men which emerged from the experience in Berlin were notable in one significant sense, their numbers, already at this early stage, had shrank. Lavrenti Beria, the Soviet Minister for Internal Affairs, in other words the Chief of the Secret Police and a man pegged to hold a considerable level of influence in the post-Stalin world, was suddenly absent. It was later confirmed that Beria had been arrested, and by the end of 1953 he would be dead. So it was that even in the midst of a thaw, the icy approach to potential threats was exercised in the same manner as Stalin had done. With Beria gone, those that remained could speak those same meaningless words which had been used following Stalin's death, to maintain the steely unity of the party and to watch for panic and disorder. Behind these empty phrases, though, the true feelings were clear. Better him than me, and perhaps more tellingly, one down, only a few more to go. Next time, we'll resume our story of this power struggle among the successors as Stalin's ghost haunts the proceedings and domestic and foreign policies overlap. Until then though, my name is Zach and you've been listening to our first episode of 1956, the eventful year, my lovely history friends and patrons. Thanks for listening and I'll be seeing you all soon.
sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.